We uh, we ready for the word? Okay, let's open our Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. I just saw that look on your face. You said, what is that? That's in the Old Testament. The easiest way, just find the table of contents, make your way towards the end. You'll see these smaller, smaller books, and Zephaniah will be over there. If you hit Daniel, keep going. If you hit Haggai, back up. Zephaniah chapter 1, and briefly this evening, I want to minister about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that's mentioned here. Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. I'm not going to read all those names. The word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven, the fishes of the sea, the stumbling blocks with the wicked, and I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place in the name of the Kimmerings with the priests, them that worship the hosts of heaven upon the housetops. And them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm, them that are turned back from the Lord and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired for him, hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. Come on, sing this this uh, song of prayer with me. The words are, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. And with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary, Lord, for you. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. And with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Amen, amen. This is certainly one of those books that people don't often read. There is a lot of good content in it. It may seem rough going in the early parts of these few chapters, but at the end of this book, chapter 3, it does end with a message of hope and redemption. Sometimes when God sends his prophets forth, he uses them with a word to cut down the bad trees, to uproot a lot of things that are ungodly. But it's always good to leave people with hope, to know that regardless of what has taken place in this world with regard to judgments, the king of kings is always going to make people smile in the end. This man, Zephaniah, we know very little about his lineage. They aren't really sure the meaning of his name. Multitudes have thought that his name meant someone who was a watchman, someone who carefully looked over Israel as a prophet of God. 
But we do know that the scripture says that he prophesied during the days of Josiah. I need to take a few moments just to lay some background for this. In 1 Kings chapter 13, the scripture says a man of God appeared on the scene and he began to prophesy during the reign of Jeroboam. And he said that because of the iniquity that's in this place, God's going to judge it. Jeroboam wasn't pleased by what he said. No name is ever given for the man of God. We know very little about him, but he went to the altar of God and cried out against the altar because of the iniquity that was there. Jeroboam said, lay hands on that man. Who is he to come into this holy place? Jeroboam had introduced idolatry. He had turned the temple of God into a place of wickedness. And now a man of God is coming, speaking the word of the Lord. It says when they reached out and grabbed him, said that Jeroboam's hand withered up. And the man was so Broken by the power of God and manifestation, he begged the man of God to intercede, and the man of God intercede, and the man's hand was healed. But that man of God prophesied and said, there's going to be a child born, and his name will be Josiah. He's going to bring revival, essentially, to the nation. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 21, 22, and in 23, it talks about how the Bible, the book of God, had been lost for generations. Josiah had a conversation with Hilkiah the priest, and the priest had told him the men were in the tabernacle, and they were rummaging through the attic and through the storehouses, and they found the book of God that had been lost for so long. And... Josiah told him to go and speak to the prophetess, hear what she had to say. Sure enough, they went and she told him to do all that's in the book. They came back and told Josiah, Josiah rent his clothes when he realized what was in the book and he hadn't been obeying it. But how can you obey it if you don't have the Bible? But notice how close the Bible was to him. It was in the house of God, but it was lost. I wonder how many people live like that today. Go to church, but the Bible is still lost to them. They hear all kinds of stories. They hear all kinds of messages, but they rarely hear a word from the Bible because for many preachers and for many churches, the Bible was lost a long, long time ago. But when you find it, it's a humbling thing. How do you order your steps righteously if you don't have the book that tells you how to live a righteous life? So Josiah, when he discovered what the word of the Lord declared, he sent his men throughout the city and they rounded up the fake priests who were unholy. The scripture says that they tore down the high places that were erected to Baal. It says that they found these Priests that had been ordained by the government officials rounded them up. It says they found the houses of the Sodomites, the places where the gays and lesbians were dwelling. And Second Kings 23 verse 5, or excuse me, verse 7 tells us that it was the place where the women wove the curtains for the groves, where they had the trees and vegetations planted where they worshipped the gods. Can you imagine a place Lesbians and homosexuals were involved with embroidery for something that was supposed to be a holy 
place of God. Josiah came along and got rid of that. Josiah found the horses that had been dedicated to the sun. Josiah found the statues that were erected during the time of Solomon, erected toward Ashtaroth, erected toward Malcolm. All of these were different deities that people were involved with as far as the worship, and yet Josiah was bringing a reformation and revival, telling people, repent and turn from your iniquity. The nation was on fire as people were excited about the return to God. But there still were a lot of people displeased by that. When God begins to move, everybody's not always excited. Some people truly are excited about a return to God, but some people don't care much about that at all. Imagine if you were raised in a generation of people that worship false gods and then people started talking about returning to God. You wouldn't even have a memory of what the true God is like. You wouldn't even know what it means to return to God. I had a good friend of mine who, whose father, he's gone on to heaven now, but I used to always tease him because in Cleveland, Ohio, there was a a nice barbecue place I used to love to go to. Oh, yes. Anytime I'm in Cleveland, I still go there. My wife and I, if we drive, we drive 19 hours straight through. And we get there in time to take a little nap. And my mom knows she doesn't even have to make lunch that day. She knows Daryl is headed to Hot Sauce Williams. I'm going to get me some barbecue on that day. I mean, lovely place. And in high school, I'd go to my friend. And, and I'd say to her dad, Mr. Sims, I'm telling you, you should go to Hot Sauce Williams. And he would tell me, no, I'm not interested in anything like that. He wouldn't eat any food unless his wife prepared it. When he went to church and they had a covered dish dinner or some kind of potluck, he wouldn't eat anything there except for the dish that his wife made. And so I said to him, I said, Mr. Sims, Hot Sauce Williams has the best ribs, the best Polish boys, the best chicken wings. I said, oh, my goodness, don't you miss it? And he looked at me and he said, boy, you can't miss what you've never had. He said, I've never been there, have no desire to go, and you can't miss what you've never had. For somebody who's never been involved with the true worship of God. They don't miss it. For someone that's never been in a move of God or experienced revival or the touch of God or the anointing of God, they don't miss it. For somebody that's never sat under the anointed proclamation of the word of God and seen the trembling that comes to men and women as conviction comes to their heart, they can't miss it. But for somebody that has tasted of the powers of the world to come, that has seen the anointing and demonstration, seen the manifestation of God, their heart longs for it. So when Zephaniah came on the scene, there were a lot of people that were excited. There were older people weeping and crying. You can see here in verse 2, the Lord is using this man to let them know, I'm displeased with what has taken place. Now I'm going to utterly consume Folks here, he said your livestock are not going to be protected, neither will the wild animals. He said, I'm going to deal with the fish in the water as well as the birds in the air and the wicked are going to be cut off in that day. He said, I'm stretching my hand upon Judah. Now, Judah as a person. 
as one of the 12 sons of the patriarch Jacob. The name, of course, means praise. You remember, Jacob had a, had a, had a, had a concubine that loved him and wanted to have one baby after another for him and kept naming these children, hoping that eventually he would love her. But when she had Judah, she said, now I will praise God. So the people of Judah were known as the people of praise, a tribe connected with praise. But the Lord says, with respect to Judah here, I'm going to stretch out my hand upon Judah. Now, let's not forget that the kingdom had been divided. The days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, in his foolishness, because he overtaxed the people, there was a breakage, of the tribes. So there was the kingdom of Judah and there was the kingdom of Israel. But within Judah was the holy city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine that the Lord said to the inhabitants of Jerusalem in verse 4, I will cut off the remnant of Baal. He's speaking to these people saying, I can't believe that in the holy city of Jerusalem, you still have a remnant of Baal worship. Just as sure as you start trying to clean something up, there's somebody that'll hold on to the vestiges of that. The Bible says that Israel was not supposed to have witches and warlocks in the land. Supposed to be cleaned out. But you'll remember the scripture says the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul suddenly found himself being tormented. And when he could not receive a word from the Lord, the scripture says that he went dressed up in a different way and he visited a witch. She shouldn't have even been in Israel. But how did he know where she lived? Somebody knew she was there. You can get in your car and you can drive to Lincoln and you can go right there around 48th and O and start looking around at the different corners. And there's one corner you'll find all kind of shops where you can get your palm red. You can have crystal ball gazing. Witchcraft. Who would have ever thought in a nation like this that was founded by people who came from England because they wanted to be a city set on a hill, a, a place where in every colony the citizens had to be a member of a church in order to vote, a place where people had a love and an affection for God. So great was the love and affection for God that wickedness was pushed out. In fact, in the history of the world, our nation is the only nation to push out slavery because of a love for God. Then here, we've got to listen to people today as they try to push out the first ones in the boat, which were the Christians, and the last one in to push, pushing those out so that they can have the first voice today as they're saying, Baal should be worshipped in our nation. Why do we even have the remnants of it here? God says that we as Christians should outreach and reach the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't live under the old covenant. We're not taken to the streets with bows and arrows and swords and attacking people and burning stuff down like you see on television today. But with the righteous word of God, minister says here that in Jerusalem, I'm going to cut off the remnant of Baal in the name of the Kimmerims. Now that is a unique word. But it goes back to 
2 Kings 23, verse 5, where it talks about the idolatrous priests. Same Hebrew word, except here it's transliterated in English for you. Who were the idolatrous priests? According to 2 Kings 23, these were government-appointed priests who were supposed to offer sacrifices in the high place, but they also burned incense to other gods. Think about that. Here is somebody that's supposed to be a holy man, someone who's supposed to give their life to the work of the tabernacle and the temple, but yet not only do they do that, but they engage in the worship of pagan ritual. You know that if the government is going to give sanction to some religious person, he typically is going to be somebody who's non-offensive and doesn't make anybody mad. Look very often at the kinds of people that have prayed for inaugurations in certain places. Always somebody that'll pray something that isn't offensive. When I was in the military, the chaplains could pray in Jesus' name. They could preach the gospel in the chapel. I preached in chapels before on military bases, as well as in the prisons on military bases. But it's against the law today to pray in Jesus' name. Chaplains can't do it. So you know if a preacher today was appointed by some governor or some mayor, possibly even by a president, it would have to be someone that doesn't anger people. He could be a Christian, but he has to also be willing to acknowledge Allah as relevant and true. He could be a Christian, but he also has to be willing to acknowledge that Joseph Smith was also he could be a Christian, but he also must make sure that he revere Buddha. These are the kinds of people that we have. When they have the prayer breakfasts up on Capitol Hill, they always tell the preachers that are praying, be very politically correct with what you're saying. There are representatives here from all over the nation, different religions. Can you imagine someone like Elijah receiving the Templeton Prize for religion in this nation. A man that walked to the top of the hill and said, you build an altar for your God, I'll build one for mine, and we'll find out whose God is real. And Elijah, of course, you know what he did. He, he, he showed out up there on that mountaintop. He did. He, he said, now, okay, you guys are, your God's not listening to you. He said, maybe he's sleeping. They said, oh, no, we got one more trick up our sleeve. They rolled their sleeves up, took the knives out, started cutting, danced all around that altar. The blood ran down, and they were calling on their God. And I mean, Elijah was yawning. <sighs> maybe he's traveling. But see, he knows that pretty soon he's got to deal with God, and he's got to deal with that altar. It's one thing to curse the darkness, but you have to be able to produce the light. And if he doesn't bring the fire of God down, they're going to be throwing rocks at him pretty soon. So he says, put some water around it. They did. Put some more around it. They did. Do it again. They, they continue to do so. And finally, he said, let the God that answers by fire, let him be true. That fire fell from heaven and I mean, in the sight of everybody, big, huge tower of flames made its way from the skies straight down 
to that altar where the sacrifice was at. And them Israelites had never seen anything like that in their lives. They looked at that. They said, whoo! And Elijah said, whose God is God now? They said, your God. He said, get on your knees. And they got down on their knees and began to worship God. And he said, now that we're done with that, round up those prophets of Baal and let's get rid of every one of them. That was a man of God that knew how to handle sin because he was operating according to the principles in the word of God. And the Lord says to these folks here in Jerusalem, we're getting rid of those priests. We're getting them out of here. And he said, anybody that goes up on their rooftop and worships the stars and the planets and other celestial entities, we're going to stop it also. I wonder how many people out here do pray to the sun, the moon, and the stars. I wonder how many people are there out here who have their lives governed by that. You, you do know that every day there are people that purchase a paper or get the paper off of their front porch and then they open it up on the table, and they can't go to work or go to sleep without first reading their horrible scope. And they have to take the time to know what it says for Leo. They need to know what it says for Sagittarius. And their lives are ordered by what they read in that paper. And some man or some woman somewhere is controlling their life by the charts that they draw in their living room, trying to determine how the heavens will order the steps of man from birth. God says, don't get involved with that. Stay away from astrology. He said, don't allow your life to be governed by what you believe is taking place with Mars, because Mars isn't a person. You should not worship another deity. Now, astrology is different than astronomy, but astrology, of course, is a method that people believe can give them information about their destiny. Zephaniah is crying out against that. In verse 6, he speaks about two specific groups of people. One, people that have backslid, then two, people that are indifferent towards God. You mean, pastor, people can turn and walk away from God? Yes. You mean people can backslide away from truth? Yes. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the Bible says at some point after several days, they murmured against Moses. They even said amongst themselves, let's make our own captain and let's let that captain lead us back to Egypt. Listen to me. If you're mindful about where you came from and you're lusting after what you had before you came into covenant with God, Pretty soon what's in your mind, in your your heart, is going to make its way into your feet. You're going to go back. And most people that backslide out of churches backslide because they were backslidden long before they got up off that chair, that pew, and left God. Somewhere in that heart, they started dreaming about what they had before they were Christian. The backslider. But God has a way of even reaching the backsliders, no doubt about it. I remember old Brother Trotter telling the story about the young uh, couple that had, I should say, the older couple had a daughter. The daughter walked away from God. She was raised in church. 
Nevertheless, they kept praying for and praying for, but it just wasn't working out. And after several months of this, one night, the daughter and her boyfriend, they were at a dance. And of course, it was kind of almost like a, a barn deal. Everybody was out there on their on dance floor and everything, having, having a good time, had a band up in a corner playing all kinds of music. And while they were getting it on out there and, and boogieing and having a good time, she started screaming because she looked down and the floor had disappeared and flames were coming up. She thought she was descending into hell. So she fell down on her knees on that dance floor and started screaming, and all of the band stopped playing, and people trying to figure out, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? And she started yelling, take me to my mother's house right now. Take me to my parents' home. And the boyfriend got her up, whisked her out of that place, got in the car, got to that house as fast as she could. She gets to the house. I mean, she's banging on that door. Folks, you know, as parents, you get somebody knocking on your door at two o'clock in the morning. It's never usually good news. So you're expecting something bad. They come running to the door to see what had happened. And I mean, their daughter just fell in the arms of mom and dad, weeping and crying. Told them what happened. But it's because of mom and dad kept praying, kept praying. Yeah, some, sometimes people grow up in church, they turn away. It doesn't have to be that way. But a person doesn't have to backslide sitting at home on a couch. I've seen them backslide sitting in church week after week. I've seen them sit there listen to red-hot preaching of the gospel, and, and the whole time sitting there, that heart grows colder and colder colder. Yeah. The scripture says here, I'm going to deal with those that have turned back from the Lord and from those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. There are some that try to live their life without God, apart from God, separate from God. I'm going to do what I want to do, whether you want me to do it or not, pastor. Who are you to tell me how I should live? What gives you the right to tell me how I should walk with God? This book is what tells us as Christians how we're to live. There is a way that seems right. To man. But the Bible says the end thereof, the ways of death. I want to remind you, we probably got over 40,000 denominations in the world. I'm sure if you talk to anybody, everybody's going to tell you that they're on the right path. And if we got 40,000 denominations, I wonder how many independent movements and independent churches we have. I'm sure all of us would say we're on the right path. But this one thing I do know, the scripture says God knows the way through the wilderness and he knows those that belong to him. He knows he looks in that heart when he looks into my heart and into your heart. If he doesn't see a reflection of his son's face, you don't belong to him. But if he sees that reflection. It's genuine passionate relationship with him that is pleasing to him. These were folks that didn't seek the Lord. Can you go a day without prayer? Can you go half a day without prayer? Should you go several days without prayer? You'd probably be surprised how many people go a week or a month without ever talking to God. 22 years we just celebrated marriage. I can promise you if during those 22 years I decided I didn't want to talk to her and she decided she didn't want to talk to me, that marriage would dissolve. 
It'd be no relationship at all. You say, but you're in a covenant. Well, what good is the covenant if there's no relationship? She's not going to talk to me and I'm not going to talk to her. God didn't call us to live together as roommates, but as married people. So in your relationship with God, God doesn't expect you to enter into a covenant with him and then forsake his voice and not even want to hear it. God wants you to hear what he has to say because he's always saying something to his churches. He waits anxiously, patiently for you and me to come into his presence. The scripture here says in verse 6, for those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired for him. Now what this means is, is when you're making a decision for your life, you need to think about God first. This is going to draw me closer to the king. Is this God's will for my life? How can I find out God's plan for my life? Read the book. Get into his word. His will is manifested. There are some people who pray after they've made a decision. You ever met people like that? Oh, yes, yes. Here's what they'll say. They'll say, okay, all right, pastor. Um, I've just got a promotion on my job, and I'm getting ready to move to Maine. And so since I'm getting ready to move, I want you to pray with me and agree with me that this will be the will of God. You've already made the decision you're going. You've already made the determination that you're going. But you've got to think about more than just the promotion. What kind of church are you going to go to when you get there? What kind of pastor are you going to have to minister to you? Who are you going to fellowship with? Because sometimes the promotion isn't as good as the fellowship you'll have with God. And I've got the perfect illustration from the word. There was a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham had a lot of livestock and he had a nephew who had just as much. And the increase kept coming. I mean, it was just getting bigger and bigger. The, the herds were getting bigger and bigger. And then finally, Lot's herdmen were, were running around arguing with Abraham's herdmen. And so they were arguing about this and they were arguing about that. And you can imagine what, what that's like. I mean, you know, Lot's ranch foreman, he probably had a name like something like John Ireland or something. He, he just starts getting into it with all of these people. He said, look, this is our well, and we want our livestock to be here. We're going to water them here. And then the other side, going back and forth. So finally, somebody said to Abraham, you know what I think? Uh, I think we have a problem here. So Abraham said, tell you what. Abraham said, why don't we separate I'll go in one direction, you go in the other direction, but you choose where you want to go. So Lot thought, okay, well, sounds like a plan. So Lot lifted his eyes towards that well-watered garden that at one time used to encompass part of Eden. And he said, wow. That's where I'm taking my family. Sure enough, he got his wife and Family and herds and ranch hands. And, and it said he pitched his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the next thing it says, it says that he was now an elder sitting in the gates. But you know what? He's sitting in the gate now. It doesn't say anything about he's got any livestock. 
Here the man separated from his uncle that had a covenant with God. He separated from the man that built altars to God. He separated from the man that knew the presence of God. And now he's sitting here not even with the very things that they split over. Because when people split and divide up relationships, very often the very thing that they fought over, they end up losing anyhow. What happened next? Living in that city with two daughters that were virgins, with two other daughters that got hooked up with men in that city. The iniquity was so great that the town itself gave name to the type of sin that was manifest there. Sodom and Gomorrah. God looked down at this and he said, oh, my Abraham, can I do what I want to do without telling a man of God like you? Well, Lord, what are you going to do? He said, I've been paying attention to the plains down there. And it's so wicked, so much iniquity down there. He said, I think I'm going to judge the place. It's going to become an ash heap pretty soon. Abraham said, oh, Lord, please, please, if, if you can find 60 people there that love you, would you spare it? He's thinking about a lot. He's thinking about his family. He doesn't want to see them perish. He hadn't talked to them in a long time. He doesn't know what's been going on with them. And the Lord said, if I can find 60, I'll spare it. Abraham was a good negotiator. You know, he kept talking to God. He said, well, Lord, 50, 40, 30, 10. Lord, if you can find 10 people, 10 holy people, would you spare it? God said, Abraham, for a man like you who commands his house, I'll do it if I can find 10. Well, next thing you know, Abraham went to sleep, woke up, went to sleep, woke up, looked out there one day, and all he saw was from a distance, hailstones, brimstones coming out of the skies, hitting the plains. I mean, just explosions of fire. God couldn't even find 10. But before that happened, God sent an angel into that area to go to Lot's house and came to Lot's house. And you know the iniquity that took place on that front porch. And that angel said, Lot, I'm telling you right now here in River City, there's going to be trouble. You need to get out of here and escape for your life. Get your wife, get your family, say, let's go. He ran over to the homes of his daughters and his sons-in-law. He said, look, wake up, wake up. He's banging on the door. They let him in. He said, look, we got to get out of here. God's about to judge this place. The scripture said they looked at him like a man who was dreaming. You've got to be out of your mind if you think we're leaving the luxuries of Sodom to go to some mountain way out yonder. They stayed. He lost two daughters. That angel said, now look, get out of here. I'm telling you right now, get out, get out. And when you run, don't even turn around and look back. Escape for your life. So, I mean, Lot and his wife and them daughters of his, they're moving. I mean, they're trucking through the wilderness and they're going as fast as they can. Then pretty soon Lot realizes that it's just him and his daughter. He's reached back here. Nobody. He's calling his wife by name. There's silence. Never even turned around. Sometimes when people fall back and you're walking with God, you got to keep going on with God regardless. Imagine that. What in the world was there in Sodom 
that was so attractive and so alluring that you would forget or disregard the command of God in order to look back and see what was happening. The smell of brimstone, the smoldering of the fire. She wanted to see what was taking place. As soon as she looked at it, she turned into a pillar of salt. Generation after generation never had any idea when they walked through the wilderness. And they saw that big, huge saline statue out there in the middle of the wilderness that at once had been somebody's wife. Never had any idea. But Lot escaped to the mountain with his daughters, realized he had nothing, had to start over again. His daughters, thinking they were making a wise decision, they said, well, hold on. Daddy's got no boys. We need to preserve the family name. Let's get dad inebriated and lay down with dad. Such wickedness. Such wickedness. And they both conceived. I I don't know what Mr. Lott must have thought when he woke up, found out them daughters were pregnant sometime later. But here's my point. Lott sat up there on that hilltop with those two daughters eventually started another life. But I wonder how many times he thought to himself later in life, had I not separated from Abraham, none of this would have ever happened. See? Yeah. Yeah. Had I stayed with Uncle Abraham and humbled myself and disciplined my herdmen, I'd have never lost two daughters, two sons-in-law, And ended up in this predicament with the kids that I have now from this terrible relationship. Yeah. Sometimes, folks, it's good to inquire of God about what you're doing before you do it so that later on you don't have to look back and say, if only I had followed God. Yeah. Ishmael came into this world because somebody wasn't following God. And we live with the remnants of that right now. Finally, that scripture said in verse 7, Hold your peace at God's presence. The day of the Lord is at hand. Judah and Jerusalem have to read the ancient scroll that has these words on it and realize that the day of the Lord is soon to come and they probably need to start amending their life now. So how is it with me? How is it with you? When you think about living for the Lord, I realize there are always False prophets who speak smooth words, who say things like this. America could never have any problems at all. Folks, all you have to do is watch that news channel and you can see. You can hardly get through the news today without somebody getting shot up or somebody taking a pickaxe to somebody killing them. You can hardly get through the newspaper without one calamity after another. Here's an earthquake in Turkey. 40,000 people dead. Earthquake in China, 10,000 people dead. Famines all across Africa. One problem after another where there's paganism and heathenism. Trouble in the land. Things that Jesus prophesied about in Matthew 24. Just before the return of the Lord for his bride. One day, this church, millions of other churches, believers, going to be caught up to be with him. Yeah. 
People say, well, what, what, what's, what's, your, what's your theory, Pastor, on the rapture? Pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. Folks, listen to me. I'm catching the first train out of here. You hear me? When that trumpet sounds, I'm gone. There's going to be all kinds of problems down here once that Antichrist manifests. and Them seals are popped open, but I can promise you we won't be here for any of that, folks. Oh, no, that church is going to be caught away. That's what Paul says. And when that happens, the scripture said, we'll forever be with the Lord. So despite what's in Zephaniah 1, despite what we see taking place in the nation and around the world, we comfort one another with this one truth. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day we're going to see him face to face. Oh, I can't wait, folks. I'm telling you, like a baby in a womb, nine months. Mama and daddy are talking to that little baby. They say, we can't wait for you to get here. And they're laying hands on that womb and they're praying and there's movement and there's jerking. And mama has a few troubles and a few pains. And Jesus says, it's all forgotten once that baby comes into this world. But you know what? That baby comes into the world and finally gets, gets a glimpse of the one that's been talking to him or her all those months. And here we are down here on planet Earth. The scripture says those that are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The Holy Ghost has been talking to your heart, to my heart for decades as we've been walking with him. But one day we're going to see him as he is. Come be powerful, folks. Oh, I can't wait. Gosh. I don't know why he just doesn't come right now. I mean, it's be a good time for the trumpet to blow. We can head right on up there and we'll look back. Say, anybody seen Randy lately? And I mean, I'm airborne, folks. I'm telling you, I'm airborne. I'm going to take that 30-inch step and I'm airborne with the king. Come on, let's stand. Amen. Yes, yes, the day of the Lord. It's going to come, folks. There's no doubt about it. Amen. Truly, it's a great day to be alive if you're alive. I'm telling you. To love him, to know him, to have a relationship with him. <sighs> how many of you love Jesus tonight? Yeah, I like that. Hey, man, see, it's good to let, let people know how happy you are about the king. We thank God for courageous people that walk with God in these days when so many have turned back. Turned back. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful because we know your word is truth. And Father, when we think about what's taking place in our own nation, although it grieves us, we also know the other side, Lord, that in the middle of all of this, you're still pouring out your spirit, saving souls, and touching lives. We know, God, that in the middle of everything that's taking place, there's still people that are hungering, and have a passion for you. So God, help us to continue to grow in grace and in knowledge. Help us to meditate on some of the things we talked about this evening. And help us, oh God, to seek your face and to inquire after you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen, amen, amen.